0: You're listening to Pastor John Castile's sermon, Trusting Obedience, from the 11 a.m. service, recorded on August 21st, 1983. Let's briefly go to the Lord in prayer and believe God and ask Him that the same Spirit that has been upon the service, the worship, the, the joy, and the precious presence of the Lord would also now be upon this time in the Word. That our hearts would be open to hear, our minds would be alert, and that we'd be able to just comprehend what God is saying to us this morning. Shall we? Would you pray with me and pray for yourself and pray that the Lord would speak to you. Father, in Jesus' name, we approach your throne with boldness and with thanksgiving, and we ask, Lord, by your grace and mercy, that you'd extend your hand upon us to speak to us, that we could hear and understand and respond in the name of Jesus. Grant me ability and strength, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In our last time together, I have, at times, I've tried to bring to you some helpful teachings on the practical side of becoming what God is calling us to be. We dealt with fear. We dealt with fear and its antidote of the peace of God. Last Sunday night I began to bring understanding regarding walking in the Spirit. I don't understand why it's so difficult to teach simply the, the spiritual walk or walking in the Spirit, but it is very difficult. Last Sunday night I think I spoke an hour and twenty minutes. Uh, I don't like to speak that long because I know that to some people they're very tired and there's an attention span problem, but I felt there was such an importance to what I was saying to the church, that those who were receiving that, that it would be a blessing and benefit to them. But every time I try to speak on this subject, invariably there's a lot of restlessness and a lot of moving around, and uh, it's not just the common boredom, but it seems like that Satan tries to bring in a disruption to whatever... Uh, the Spirit may give you as we speak about this practical moving into the walk of the Spirit. Because I try to speak directly to you rather than just to sermonize, I find myself unsure at times like that whether or not there is actually those receiving or not and what are the points are reaching you. It would be, fine, it would be hard to find a subject of more importance to the long-range goals of the church than the subject of walking in the Spirit. Yet few really do walk in the Spirit with any consistency. Very few can define what that means to them. So very few are teaching their families or their friends to walk in the Spirit. None of a very, there isn't a peer pressure in the church of walking in the Spirit. The peer pressure seems to be half-heartedness and lethargy rather than the pressure to move on with the Lord. One of the most important aspects of our life, then, is somehow left up to chance and without real practical teaching. I don't believe that this is correct at all. You were born, brought into the Holy Spirit's walk, born anew by the Holy Spirit, that you might grow up and become a son of God. You weren't born to remain a child. You weren't born to remain infant or Uh, Even in puberty, you were born to grow up and become mature and grow in the Lord. You were born in the Spirit, that you might live in the Spirit, that you might walk in the Spirit. Walking in the Spirit is your right, and it is your responsibility. For those of you who were not here last Sunday night, let me give you a little review so you can catch up to our thinking before we go on with the rest of the uh, the message. First, we tried to catch a vision of what it would be like if at least half of this church, say from 1,000 to 1,500 people, would begin, beginning the month of September, say, to walk in the Spirit for the next five years. We walk consistently according to the Holy Spirit. What an impact we could have upon the community, upon our lives, upon our families. And then we thought, well, what if all of us did it? What if 100% of Grace Chapel's members made it A a direction that they were going to walk in the Spirit of God and according to the Spirit with consistency from now on, the rest of their lives. Most of us know that when we just sit and think about it for a moment, that this really is the only way that God's purposes are going to be established, and that is if we, in fact, do, as a body, walk in the Spirit. We also can figure out without too much problems that unless we do, even our own lives will fall short of God's glory in them. That unless we walk in the Spirit, we will, in fact, miss out on much that we're called to. So the bottom line is that all of us, every one of us, need to rearrange our priorities, reset our goals, to include personally arriving at a consistent Obedience and understanding and a walking in the Spirit, a living relationship with Jesus that will cause us to live and walk according to Him, to His ways, to the gentle, constant, consistent leading of that ever-speaking voice within us, the Holy Spirit. This is not only important for the staff and possibly the elders, but it's important for every person that belongs to this body, visitor, attender, and every other church in the city. That every one of God's people move into this realm. Walking in the Spirit, then what do we mean by that? Well, let's begin thinking about it. When you were, when you became a Christian, you were born of the Spirit. Jesus called it being born again. You were born by the Spirit of God. That is the Spirit of God under the power of the Word of God, working with the Word and the Spirit together, coupling with your cry out to God and your prayer, Your spirit and your soul cried out to the Lord and asked Him to come into your life. And His coming in ushered you into a realm of the Spirit. And by that means, the Spirit of God brought you into a realm of awareness and relationship with God that you had not had before. You began to receive, by the gifting of God Himself, spiritual communication, spiritual hearing spiritual seeing you begin to sense God's presence You began to feel things you didn't feel before you begin to be able to communicate with God God's Spirit began to be able to communicate to your heart you begin to soften and think differently this is called the new birth experience you were brought into the realm of the spirit so that you began to be a spiritual person that is rather than just dictated by a blindness and a hardness you begin to soften and your spirit began to relate to God and God began to have input into your life to a great dimension. This is called a new birth. From that point, Paul says, this brings you to the place of, quote, living in the Spirit. In other words, you're born of the Spirit that you might live in the Spirit. That is, you now have those spiritual senses. You are able to develop them into becoming a deeply spiritual person through relationship with the Lord, by reading and meditating on His Word, By learning to pray and by learning to worship, by practicing relationship with God, your mind and your soul and your senses begin to be renewed so that your life springs from a different motivation and your direction is towards different goals as you live in the Spirit. We are born of God. Not to remain children, not to remain like we are, not just to be saved, not just to get a certain problem or crisis we're in answered or responded to. We're born of God that we might become sons of God, grown-up, mature Christian believers, people who walk in the Spirit. Just as we are not born to remain children in the natural life, we're not born to remain children in the spiritual life. God laid his hand on you personally, and I'm talking to you individually, not to you in mass, okay, God laid his hand on you to bring you to full sonship and cause you to grow up in him, into the full dimension of his calling. The problem that we have is that so few of us actually ever do grow up into God, into that position of sonship, that most of us simply do not believe that it is even practical or possible. And so what is status quo is really way subnormal in God. Are you understanding what I'm saying? And so the peer pressure that we have is really to lay back and don't grow because it's what everyone's doing. I'm not just speaking of Grace Chapel, I'm talking about the Christian situation as we know it. The Apostle Paul taught us that the practical steps in walking in the Spirit and becoming grown up sons of God are simply these. And we're going to go through them in Romans 6, 7, and 8. Notice we're going to read together in Romans 6, Romans 8, we're going to read from 1 Samuel 15, and then we're going to come back to Hebrews 3 and Hebrews 4, and then we're going to go to 1 John 5. And so you that want to go along in your Bible, you might begin sticking your finger in those places because we'll go pretty quickly. In Romans chapter 6, verse 4, he begins to speak and explain to the Christians what happened when they were baptized. Now I know right away, many people have not been baptized. They don't feel they need to be baptized. Isn't it amazing? People don't know why they need to be baptized. It doesn't matter if you think, if you don't know why you need to be baptized, God knows you need to be baptized. And the Lord invented baptism because He knew you needed to be baptized. Now, it would be smart if we recognized that God is smart and that He does things right and He does them well and that maybe we don't know everything so well, and so if God has something for me, it's because I need it. And so Paul is writing to these people that were baptized, and many of them just did it because everyone was doing it, and the apostles said to do it, and they didn't understand what had happened. And they weren't enjoying the full benefit of baptism because they didn't recognize what had gone on in their baptism in the Spirit, in the realm of God. Verse 4 he says, therefore we are buried with him in baptism. The reason we immerse people in the water is because it is a burial of the past life. We're taking what they were, what they've turned from, and burying it with Jesus that they can come out of that water in a figure of total newness and complete consecration unto the Lord alone. He says, listen, we are buried with him in by baptism into death that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father even so we also should walk in newness of life for if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection knowing this that our old man is crucified with him that the body of sin might be destroyed the reason for this is that body of sin that, that leads us astray might be destroyed that henceforth We should not serve sin, for he that is dead is freed from sin. Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him." Knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Look at Jesus, he's saying. He died on the cross. He's not going to die again. His whole life now is with the Father, seated at the right hand of the Father. It's a new existence for him. Verse 11 says, likewise reckon ye also yourselves. Reckon means count on this, know this, take this for sure. Reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin. Dead indeed simply means really dead to sin and alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Therefore, because you're alive unto God. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. Don't allow sin therefore to come back and dominate or take the throne or or be boss in your life that you should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin. Notice the progression. You don't have to obey sin. Neither do you have to yield your bodies as instruments to do unrighteousness that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. Now, I want you to notice down in verse 19, he gets real basic and simple with it. And he says, I speak after the manner of men. Because of the infirmity of your flesh. I'm going to talk in in earthly ways because of the weakness of your flesh. For as ye have yielded your members servants to uncleanness and iniquity unto iniquity, even so now yield your members servants to righteousness unto holiness. So this is the walk in the Spirit. Burying ourselves, reckoning myself alive only unto God, and because of that only yielding my members and my mind and my activities unto the service of God. Well, he gets more excited about it. Chapter 7 and 8, Paul directs himself to the struggle between the will and the old nature, and it's victory to those who walk not after the flesh. And he's talking about those Christians who accepted the new birth experience, but don't grow in God, don't live after the things of God, never feed their spiritual nature, never become dominant in their spirit, and always are falling back into the old ways because they remain under its spell and attraction dominion. So chapter 8, he wraps it all up by telling us why it is so important to walk entirely in the Spirit. We're going to begin in verse 5. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, to dwell with your mind in the carnal things brings death but to be spiritually minded is life and peace because the carnal mind is enmity against God for it is not subject to the law of God neither indeed can be so then they that are in the flesh cannot please God notice verse 9 but ye are not in the flesh now this is something I tried to get the whole church to repeat with me last week and believe God's word says I am not in the flesh doesn't mean I'm not in my body I am in my body but my body no longer has dominion over me sure I still need to eat and I need to sleep and I need to exercise and all of those things to keep it healthy but it has become the temple of God and I'm not in the flesh in the respect that the flesh has dominion over me any longer. My mind, through the Spirit of God, now takes over and dominates my body. And notice, he says, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. And if any man have not the Spirit of God, he is none of his. So I think it's fair for you and I to repeat this. I am not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. Say it with me, that's right. I am not in the flesh. You need to know that. You are not in the flesh anymore, if so be that the Spirit of God be in you. And verse 10, And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of spin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness so that God has brought an an overcoming a victory over your old nature by placing his spirit in your body verse 11 says but if the spirit of him that raised up Christ from the dead dwell in you he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken or give life to your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you so we find that the spirit of God in its indwelling presence in us causes even our natural desires to be changed and become godly Therefore, brethren, he says in verse 12, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh. I don't owe the flesh any allegiance. I don't owe the flesh anything. My debt is not to the flesh, but to the Spirit of God who came and redeemed me and worked in me that new birth experience. Verse 13 says, for if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if you, through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the flesh, you shall live. Here are the two ways of living. The Christian can live according to the flesh and bring that death walk back in his life. That separation, that aloofness from God, that mediocrity, that half-heartedness, which the Bible calls a form of death. He's not talking about eternal destruction here. But he's talking about that death walk coming back. Or you by the Holy Spirit and by your relationship with the Holy Spirit can mortify or put to death the very works of death and the flesh walk within you. And the last verse, verse 14, is one we want to pay strict attention to. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. And so that's the kicker. That's the goal. Being led of the Spirit Brings us into the relationship of full grown sons of God. Well, I'd like to just for a moment think about all of this walk in the Spirit and how we get there. It's all well and good, but I notice that very few of us keep our minds from our carnal ways, but instead we feed them with all kinds of carnal things, input going on regularly, and our lives as a result come out in conflicts of inconsistency. I brought this question to the Lord in prayer over and over many times in failure. Why did I fall, Lord? Why did I do that? Why did I get angry? Why did I, why, why? I don't understand. I thought this morning in the Bible study, you and I had that settled. I thought yesterday when we were praying about this, this was over with. Why did it come back to me? Over and over, I've gone through this with the Lord. Now, believe the Lord has shown me some reasons why. Looking for a moment at the life of King Saul, and his confrontation with the prophet Samuel, a very interesting set of principles is revealed. And if you'll turn with me to 1 Samuel 15, we'll look at that word very closely. It's a story in the life of Samuel. Under the command of the Lord, Saul was to go to Amalek. Saul was king of Israel. And he was going down to the nation of Amalek, and he was commanded to completely destroy the nation and all its possessions. Now think of that. He was commanded to destroy men, women, children, babies, donkeys, camels, sheep, oxen, everything that was there. Utterly destroy it. God's reasons were, in verse 2, that he remembered what they had done to Israel when they were wandering in the wilderness many decades before. Now during my study time I did not trace out the exact time, but this was at least a hundred or so years before that Amalek had done this terrible thing against Israel, probably closer to 300. And God all of a sudden says, I remember what they did, go down and write it. Verses 8 through 9, upon receiving this command, Saul gathered the army and with the help of God did wage war against Amalek and he conquered them, but decided in the victory that they would bring back the best of the cattle and sheep and good things for whatever reasons they had, rather than actually slaying them all and wasting them. Verse 11, God 10 and 11, God wakes Samuel up way back where he was at, and he says to Samuel, I'm fed up with Saul, and I'm grieved in my heart, and it repents me that I made him king. He has separated and turned from my word. The prophet Samuel was astonished when the Lord came to him in the spirit and told him this because he had been so involved in Saul's anointing. He had been so involved in Saul's life. And he was, he was amazing to him that Saul would not perform the word of the Lord. Samuel took all this very personally and grieving in his heart came out to meet Saul. And he was kind of like loaded for bear. He was going after Saul. And so here comes Saul back with the army and all the possessions and the soldiers are excited and the women and the children come out to meet them and the whole nation is in a festival and they're excited about this great army you can just see in your mind the herds of sheep and the herds of the oxen and the victorious soldiers coming back and they're strutting and Samuel goes out there the great prophet whom they're watching and Saul be- greets him in verse 13 with blessed be thou of the Lord I have performed the work of the Lord Samuel tersely replies to him. I don't think Samuel was smiling when he said this. What meaneth then the bleating of these sheep in mine ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? You have obeyed God. What's this I hear then? Verse 15, Saul gives us a priceless answer. I mean it's down to where you and I live. He says, they... Have you ever tried to figure out who's they? They do this. Everybody else does this. Everybody else gets to go. Everybody else can do that. They said, somebody is they. This great big imaginable they. Who it is? I don't know who they are. But Saul picked it up. You know, it wasn't new. When there weren't very many people, Adam just said, the wife you gave me. You know? And there was always this placing of blame. They have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice unto the Lord thy God and the rest we have utterly destroyed. Man, we obeyed the word of God. We went. We did what God said. But we took the very best to bring to the Lord. Now we would all naturally echo Man, that sounds like a good idea. After all, think of the great service we could have. Think of the great meeting. We could include the people in this. Besides, it wouldn't cost us anything. What difference would it make to God whether we killed them here or there? Big deal. But Samuel didn't think so. He didn't like the idea. And he, and he almost seems like he's crotchety old man about the whole thing. He just really gets, really upset. And I want to read with you uh, from verse 16 on a little ways. Uh, no, I said 16, it's not, yes. Verse 16, then Samuel said to Saul, now notice they're all here before the people and they're having this argument right in the middle of the festival while all the people are watching them. And he says, Stay, and I will tell thee what the Lord has said to me this night. And he said unto him, Say on. Samuel said, When thou wast little in thine own sight, wast thou not made the head of the tribes of Israel, and the Lord anointed thee king over Israel? And the Lord sent thee on a journey, and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they be consumed. Wherefore then didst thou not obey the voice of the Lord? But didst fly upon the spoil, and didst evil in the sight of the Lord. And Saul said unto Samuel, Yea, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord, and have gone the way which the Lord sent me, and have brought Agag the king of the Amalekites, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the chief of the things which should have been utterly destroyed, to sacrifice unto the Lord thy God in Gilgal. Samuel said, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice, as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to hearken than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. There, Because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he hath also rejected thee from being king. And Saul said unto Samuel, I have sinned for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in thy words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, I pray thee, pardon my sin and turn again with me that I may worship the Lord. Come on, Samuel. Okay, I sinned, but it's a good idea. Let's go do it. Come and worship with us. Go to the sacrifice with us. We need you there. Samuel said unto Saul, I will not return with thee. For thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord hath rejected thee from being king over Israel. And as Samuel turned about to go away, he laid hold upon the skirt of his mantle, and it rent. And Samuel said unto him, The Lord hath rent the kingdom of Israel from thee this day, and hath given it to a neighbor of thine that is better than thou. And also the strength of Israel will not lie nor repent, for he is not a man that he should repent. Then he said, I have sinned. Yet honor me now, I pray thee, before the elders of my people and before Israel, and turn again with me that I may worship the Lord thy God. So Samuel turned again after Saul, and Saul worshipped the Lord. Now, most of you that study the Bible know the story of Saul. How that immediately, because he refused to repent and justified his halfway, re- his halfway obedience, stuck it out there and did it, Samuel went up and worshipped with him, but God's presence departed from Saul. Saul. And Saul's ability to government began to slip out of his hands. And God began to use other people to bring deliverance. First Jonathan and then David. Little by little Israel was led into sin and led into bondage because Saul lost his anointing. But he never fully repented. We don't find him looking at altars. We don't find him consulting with the ark. Until the very last of his days, Saul, tormented by an evil spirit now, goes to a witch to find the will of God because he he tries to bring up Samuel again who has now died. And we find Saul dying on a battlefield, losing the battle, bringing Israel into disrepute and bondage. And it was an Amalekite that killed him. The very ones, the very thing that he rejected God about. Meditating meditating upon this story from real life, we find several points that come up. Number one, God and Samuel had different ideas about obedience than did Saul. God was asking for complete obedience. Saul was of the opinion that close was good enough, that 80% was a B average. That, you know, going and fighting and doing it all was enough that that was close enough, the rest didn't matter. Two, Saul thought that the people's suggestion and his own reasoning were more valid than the Lord's own idea and what he commanded. We can see this trait developing earlier in Saul's life and culminating in this experience. Three, God called this halfway obedience stubbornness and rebellion. It's not what Saul called it. Saul called it a good idea. Fourth. Saul had so justified himself in his own mind that he refused to repent fully from his actions, but only tried to establish his own case and kept putting it out there. When the prophet wouldn't buy it, he made a semblance of repentance to just get along and patch up the conflict. Saul held the right to be in disagreement with God and yet still maintain relationship. The fifth This attitude of partial obedience was something that God felt so strongly about that he withdrew his anointing and presence from Saul and began to allow Israel to fall into bondage again. Saul reasoned that the reasons for his actions were justifiable and reasonable. It all happened, quote, because I feared the people. That was reason enough. As I've read this story, it was very easy to identify with Saul's disobedience. First of all, every time I've read this story as I grew up, I thought God was being too harsh with the Amalekites. I said, you know, goodness sakes, these people didn't even do the sin. But instead it's their descendants' descendants that you're dealing with. And second, why kill the babies and the women? And what in the world kill the sheep for? doesn't make any sense to me. If I put myself into the situation as one of Saul's lieutenants, I usually go in as a lieutenant in my imagination. I never go under a a sergeant. I'm always, you know, pretty high myself. I believe I might have gone right along with the idea and I would have said to Saul, you know, that sounds good. Let's do it. First, my mind has trouble with God's harshness on Amalek. And I also have a problem of wasting all those lamb chops. You know, it just bothers me to waste all that good food. What it comes down to is that it's difficult for me to trust God at all times and in every situation. Sometimes I'm not sure why He asks us what He asks us to do. So I come up with a creative way of making us all happy. God says something. Family says something. The peer group says something. And I want to do something. So... I come up with a middle-of-the-road decision. Hello? Is anybody there? Okay. This is going to make us all happy. I'm not going to get too tight with God because that might mess up my job. And and I'm going to walk with Jesus enough so that it doesn't hurt us financially. And I'm going to And I'm going to put this thing together and everybody's going to be happy. I come up with some creative thinking. After all, isn't that what God gave me a mind for? Saul's problem was simply unbelief. His disobedience was based upon fear and a lack of trust in God. He did not trust God's word to really be the best answer for the given situation. So he came up with a better idea than God. But God called it disobedience. I find this theme tucked into the fabric of scripture from the beginning to the end. I find it in my own life from beginning to end. And I find it in the lives of all those I counsel with and deal with. Our half-heartedness, our laid-backness, everything that we are that is not fully responsive to God, there is in this an element of unbelief that we don't see as unbelief, but that expresses itself in disobedience. Eve didn't really trust God's option either. Satan came along and says, well, why did God say? Hath God really said you can't eat of that tree? Ah, God knows that the day you eat of it, you're going to be like God himself, knowing good and evil. And Eve says, yeah. And so it is all down through our lives. Many of us know God's word. We know God's will. We know what we should be doing and what we shouldn't be doing. But we go ahead and compromise our life with God. Because honestly, down deep inside us, we think it'll work out best in the whole situation. It comes down to, I don't trust God, to really know what he's talking about, really be God. Cain didn't like God's way of blessing Abel. His way of handling it was not to go and offer Abel's sacrifice, but let's just eliminate Abel. And then God won't have anyone to bless but me. But it didn't work. Israel sinned over and over, constantly fell into sin. The sin was griping and complaining. The sin was idolatry at the golden calf. The sin was immorality when Balak cast a stumbling stone before them. The sin was murmuring over the the, the manna. The sin was uh, rebellion against Moses. The sin was chiding with Moses. The sin was uh, Miriam and Aaron fighting with Moses over his authority over them. Over and over these Problems went on with Israel and Paul the Apostle sums them up and tells us what the sin really was in Hebrews chapter 3. And he says all of their sin came down to one thing and that was they did not trust God. It was unbelief. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12 through 13, he says, Take heed, brethren, pay attention. That's what take heed means. King James English says take heed. It means pay attention, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Pulling away from God, pulling away from his ways, going second best. Any distance between you and God comes from an evil heart of unbelief. But he says, exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. You harden in your position like Saul. You justify where you're going. You justify your actions. Verse 19, he says, so we see that they could not enter in. Enter into what? They were called out of Egypt not to remain in the desert. They were called out of Egypt to go into Canaan and enjoy the promises and the blessings and the fullness of God. But a whole generation of them missed that promise. Why couldn't they enter in? Because they sinned, yes. But what was the problem in the sin? The problem was unbelief. Verse 19, we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Chapter 4, verse 2, Paul goes on to explain. The Word preached to them. They heard the Word. They understood it. That wasn't the problem. It did not profit them not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. Faith, then, is the basic issue of obedience. Obedience to the word of God is an issue of faith. It comes down to this, is this really a viable way to live? God has a way that he wants me to live. Is it really, in my mind, viable? Is it workable for me? If I'm not convinced that God's ways are really best, I will constantly hang on to the eternal life promises of my destiny and my future after this life. But follow the ways that seem best and live in a compromise. This is why Paul stated so simply from the Old Testament prophet that those who really were righteous were those who walked by faith. Romans 1.17, speaking about the power of the gospel and the progression of believing, the constant moving into more and more faith. He says, for therein, in the gospel, in the unraveling of the story of gospel, is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith as it is written, quoting the old prophet, the just shall live by faith. The progression of believing. Have you noticed that every time you reach a plateau of belief and faith and you get something down, God sends you a new problem, a new difficulty that you have to go through the process now of trusting him again, growing in faith. Therein is the righteousness of God revealed, from faith to faith, because the just shall live by faith. It was very interesting to me to find that when I studied faith in the Old Testament, there were only two occasions that the word faith was used in the King James Bible. And I'd already dealt, I've already dealt with one of those, and that's the prophet that said, the just shall live by faith. Instead, God uses the word in the King James Bible, at least, trust. There's something very personal about the word trust. Faith is kind of an abstract. Faith is kind of an issue-oriented thing, but trust is personal. When I trust someone, it's a personal reliance upon their character and their intentions. And when you talk about trusting God, you're talking about It seems that his character is on the line. Having faith can have faith in anything that is a step or two away from God. But trusting God, that's the issue of faith that brings obedience. Do I trust him? It takes in the idea that God's person is on the line in our response to him. In this form, the word faith is used hundreds of times as trust. They that trust in the Lord. Cast your care upon Walking in the Spirit today. Why don't we walk in the Spirit? Every one of us listen to a service and we say, I'm going to walk in the Spirit. Bless God the rest of the week. And we get out of the place and we quit. We stop. Because we have this situational ethic in which we're not sure... That God's way is going to be best in that situation. We don't trust Him. If we really decided to trust God, and I've come to the place where faith to me is a decision on my part. I decide whether I will or will not trust God. I decide whether I feel God's word is adequate. And I follow that. People today are so into confession as confession, the main thing of faith. No, confession is not the main thing. Faith is a beginning. Confession is a beginning of faith. But the real crux of faith is your obedience. The greatest demonstration of faith you have is if you obey God. You don't obey God out of self-effort. You obey God because you trust Him. You place your life in His hands. You place your family in His hands. You place your finances, your career. You throw it all in His hands for Him to do with as He sees fit. That's faith. And then you begin to respond daily according to the dictates of the Holy Spirit. You begin to yield your mind, your body, your soul as instruments of God because you trust Him. What would it mean to walk in the Spirit? Walking in the Spirit would mean releasing our own ways. We couldn't come up with better ideas anymore like Saul. We would have to rely on his word. It would mean eating a lot of crow. You know, crow supper is not so bad after you get used to it. Eating a lot of crow about things that God has spoken to us that we've justified over like Saul has done. It would mean softening our hearts and positions of aloofness from each other and from the body. It would mean getting involved in prayer and getting involved in the things of God, full bore. It would mean surrendering our rights and maybe some of the things that own us that we really think we own but really own us. On the other hand, it would also mean drawing nearer to God. Walking in the Spirit would mean constant relationship with Him. It would, become, it would be becoming truly usable in His hands. It would result in releasing us from bondages and fears. It would bring us to a place of really knowing God, really loving Him, really loving each other, knowing the fruit of the Spirit, growing in God, enlarging our hearts and minds. John said in 1 John 5, 4, This is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. So we come down to this question. Do I believe God enough? Do I trust Him enough to really obey Him? Let's pray about this. Father, in the name of Jesus, Speak to us. Touch us. Cleanse us. In Jesus' name. Richard, would you come?